Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Technology Intelligence Podcast with me, Harry DeKettville. Throughout this series, we're exploring how technology will change a number of specific vital areas of your life in future. In episode one, we looked at the money in our pockets, and in future episodes, we'll deal with careers, health, and how we spend our leisure time. In each episode, we speak to the entrepreneurs behind the technologies that are shaking things up, hearing also broader perspectives and analysis from scholars, historians, and experts. If you like what you hear and would like to gain a better understanding of today's tech innovation, subscribe to the Technology Intelligence Podcast for updates, and remember to give us a review. In this, the second episode of the Technology Intelligence Podcast, we look at the future of cars and the road that they might take. So let's begin. When we as humans have an accident, now I, I, had, a, I had a bad accident, um, I pulled out in front of a truck onto an A road. Um, and I just, I, I wasn't distracted. I just genuinely didn't see this truck. And it was pretty grim. Everyone in the family was okay, but it wasn't clear that they were going to be as that truck was plowing into the back of the car. The thing is, the next day, um, I was like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm driving any better now because I, I don't know what I did wrong. There wasn't something obvious that I would do differently now. That was quite a lonely experience and I, I was nervous. But here's the thing. When a machine makes a mistake or something unexpected happens, you can go back and forensically analyze exactly what happened. And you can get your cracking good engineers on it and say, okay, look, here's, here's a situation that was awful. Here's what went wrong, but here's the important bit. That that learning that, and you know, that machine learning, those updates on that software, because we are talking about software, could be rolled out to the whole fleet immediately. And so the fact that there was one accident, and again, really come back to this, nothing I say takes away from the tragedy of any accident. It's always too many. But one accident happening can reduce the chances of all other accidents happening of that type. And that's something that simply doesn't happen when we drive as humans because it's personal, we're locked in our skulls. That's Paul Newman. He works on developing the technology behind autonomous vehicles. We're going to dig deeper into the issues surrounding the arrival of driverless cars with him later in the episode. But to begin, and as Paul's story reminds us, it's important to remember that we as humans are always at the heart of these questions posed around the arrival of new technologies. We as a society ultimately decide which innovations do or do not enter our lives and how quickly. 
When is it the right time to recognise the benefits of new technologies and embrace them for their social benefits? And when is it right to accept and defend the status quo? Of course, these are complex questions with many forces involved and no simple answers. The internal combustion engine, for example, has powered our vehicles and economies for over a century. And despite its poor efficiency and reliance on the burning of fossil fuels, it continues to be central to today's auto industry. But with new technologies which might lead to greener forms of mobility on the horizon, shouldn't the days of the internal combustion engine be numbered? Well, it's only what it ought to be. We haven't been working on the internal combustion engines. We haven't built factories with diesel engines. And we don't have that history, so we can start from scratch and do something new. That's James Dyson, who famously comes from a background in vacuum cleaners. But he's entering the auto sector himself in the near future with his own electric car designs. He thinks that for the internal combustion engine really to become a thing of the past, governments need to step in with legislation to help things along as, well, the major players are, shall we say, economically motivated to ensure that progress doesn't move quicker than necessary. I don't think car companies are going to change particularly quickly because they've got a huge investment in the old type of car. Granted, the auto industry is in the driving seat, as it were, but as James knows all too well, when you're established, you're also vulnerable to those nimbler and better placed to innovate. The internal combustion engine requires the burning of a finite resource, which is responsible for some pretty unpleasant side effects. There are potential cleaner alternatives, but we are confronted with a problem. The real problem that the world faces is how to take the enormous amount of available energy from renewable sources and store it at low cost and efficiently. To give you a sort of ballpark... We always used to work off the basis that if every roof inside the M25 was covered in photovoltaic panels, uh, Britain would be self-sufficient in electricity if we could store it economically. That's Jim Heathcote of Super Dielectrics. And this issue of storage is a big one, as to get a proper charge, today's batteries require a steady flow of energy for a long time. That doesn't sound ideal, but even so, it's where a lot of people are focusing their efforts right now. At the moment, it seems to me that uh, everyone is going with uh, lithium-ion or some sort of derivative of lithium-ion battery technology for cars. So very big versions of the kind of battery that you have in your phone, basically. That's right, yes. So when you plug one in, I actually have one of the early electric cars myself, and it takes several hours to charge. And there are other issues with these electric batteries as well. Like the internal combustion engine, they require rare resources like lithium and cobalt, as opposed to fossil fuels, and they need to be recycled when you're finished with them. Batteries have quite a few downsides to them in the longer term, but in the short term, they're very, very good for getting the concept of clean transportation over. But they're just the beginning of something that will develop over the next 10 or 20 years. So, we're really in the very early development of electric batteries. But Jim's not focusing solely on them. He's also interested in supercapacitors, which use physics rather than chemistry to store and release their charge. They can charge and discharge very, very quickly. Supercapacitors can. Yes. They do have other downsides, so there is no perfect solution to this. The electric cars of today therefore combine the technologies of both batteries and supercapacitors in an attempt to provide a cleaner match to the performance we're accustomed to from internal combustion engines. But in his quest for greater performance, Jim and his team of scientists seem to have stumbled on a breakthrough while working on an entirely different area. 
the almost unbelievable attempt to put the internet, yes, on a contact lens. In July 2016, we sent our materials off to be independently tested by Bristol University, one of the country's leading electrochemists. And after two weeks, he rang up and said, look, um, could you send us some more samples and could you reconfigure them? And uh, I, t- I said to Do- Dr. Highgate, I said, either they've lost the samples or they've found something interesting. And six weeks later, we got, got a report from Bristol, which said that they thought we had discovered some materials that can store between 1,000 and 10,000 times more energy than existing electrolytes in supercapacitors, which is a very difficult thing to understand or accept. But if we're lucky, this could change the way human beings live. So if indeed these discoveries are what they appear to be, it's a remarkable leap forward, which could bring improved performance to electric cars very soon. Another potential clean source of energy is hydrogen, which is where Hugo Spowers and his River Simple company have focused their attention. We're developing hydrogen cars, but we're doing so because we don't believe that there's anything that can be remotely as efficient as a hydrogen car for the sort of range to which we've become accustomed. Now, we don't believe that there's a single silver bullet and there's definitely a role for battery electric vehicles. Uh, But they're so completely different to hydrogen vehicles that we need them both, and for different vehicle segments, if you like. The efficiency of vehicles, we think, is one of the key things that we've got to make a step change in. I I don't mean 10 or 20% better, but I mean a, a factor four or five times better than cars of today. That depends hugely on the weight of vehicles, and batteries are very heavy, so they really make sense for short-distance vehicles. But once you build a car for longer and longer range, they rapidly become very inefficient. But either way, electric, driven by hydrogen or electric, driven by lithium-ion batteries, is the age of the combustion engine over? Oh, I think absolutely. It's just simply a matter of time and inertia in our system. They're fundamentally very inefficient. We're we're a very lazy species, um, and... Petrol engines are very versatile, so we use them for everything, but they just do everything very inefficiently. And for Hugo, concerns around efficiency go well beyond mileage and range. Uh, We need a step change, not just in the technology, but also in in the business models by which we supply vehicles to customers. The problem is that if you sell cars, you make more money by selling more cars. It doesn't doesn't matter if it's cars or, or washing machines or whatever. The sale of product business model of the 20th century has really got to change. Because essentially, you're rewarded for maximising resource consumption. Built-in obsolescence is uh, is a driver for the industry. The industry, auto industry, invented the term built-in obsolescence. But uh, unfortunately, if you sell cars, you make your money from uh, the sale of cars from obsolescence and high running costs. And it's the opposite of what uh, we're trying to achieve. We need to minimise resource consumption. I don't see how we can ever have a sustainable industrial society based on rewarding industry for the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. As the various parties in the peloton continue to battle it out in the race to displace the internal combustion engine, another area of potential disruption to the future of cars is over an assumption that has been central to the profitability of the auto industry for a century. Ownership. The idea that you don't need to buy a car in order to benefit from it has created a new sector which people are calling mobility as a service. Some suggest this is due to a customer demand for flexibility. Others point to millennials growing up with Uber and no longer seeing the benefit of putting up with large costs required to buy a car. 
there are all sorts of startups looking to create some space in this area. Of course, the major ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft offer solutions for one-off trips. But what if you'd like a car that you can have access to all the time, maybe one month at a time? A subscription car, you might call it, on the Netflix model. My name is Felix Leuschner. I'm the founder and CEO of Drover. Drover is a mobility-as-a-service marketplace. And on the demand side of our offer, we provide uh, flexible monthly car subscriptions at an all-inclusive price, so including the car, insurance, maintenance, all costs that are typically associated with a car as a monthly subscription product, whereby you can cancel your car monthly, you can change your car monthly, or you can keep it for as long as you want to. And on the supply side, we work with um, car rental companies, car dealerships, OEMs, leasing companies who we provide with a listings and fleet management interface and an insurance integration directly with our insurance partner, Munich Re, who, uh, for whom we make it you know, really easy to monetize their available car inventory very effectively through our marketplace. So... Much like Uber, which is connecting customers who want to lift with drivers who want to provide that service, Drover is fulfilling a similar function of connecting customers to car dealerships and car rental companies who might want to help them own one in a whole new way. Yes, we think we can build a fundamentally better model because of a couple of things. So as you rightly point out, actually, all the innovation in the mobility space has really focused on how to get from A to B obviously with ride sharing, but also car sharing. And actually those people who want a car permanently or access to a car permanently, very little innovation has that happened with the exception of classifieds moving online, but that's about it. You still go to an, a dealership, spend hours there, you negotiate around the price. Um, fundamentally, if it's a used car, you don't know what you're buying, with very little warranty. Um, you need to then go on a price comparison side to find your car insurance. You need to take care of all the maintenance bits yourself. And by the time you're selling it, you may go again to the likes of uh, We Buy Any Car and others and lose a lot of value there as well um, in terms of the trade-in value versus the actual residual value of a car. So in our experience, a totally broken model. And we basically believe that A, customers want much more flexibility um, they want competitive pricing and they want just a fairer model. And they, I don't think, have a huge intent to travel and negotiate and deal with people who they may not want to deal with, but rather have a digitally native interface where basically you don't need to talk to anyone. You can see all the available inventory and just get a car for, again, as long as you short you want to at an all-inclusive price. So does this mean at some point in the future we're going to own nothing? I have a couple jeans in my closet um, that have very low utilization, but I'm still not going to share those, right? I'm still going to own them. And so I think that they're just goods which are very high value goods where, where low utilization really matters economically and where it's very inefficient to own something. And again, we're actually professional owners who kind of do this for a living may be much more sophisticated at owning them than you are. Huge companies don't own their own buildings, but they sell them and lease them back because they recognize they're not the right owners for that particular asset. And I think that sort of effect is really trickling down to sort of consumer services, which again, I think people fundamentally care what they're paying and that they're getting a great deal and they, you know, everybody appreciates flexibility. I think sort of the future of work, you know, it's greatly changing and requires much more flexibility of personal lifestyles. And yeah, with that, I think the trend to such, you know, hugely expensive items such as cars to have a more flexible way of adapting that asset to your lifestyles and 
actually being relieved from the burden of owning it is a good thing, especially if you can deliver it at, you know, better economic terms, which, you know, we very much can and, and continue to strive to improve on. Felix from Drover. So the third and final area of disruption we're going to look at in today's episode of the Technology Intelligence Podcast is the much-anticipated and hotly debated arrival of driverless cars, or autonomous vehicles, as they're also known. Oxford Robotics, Holly speaking. Hi, it's Harry DeKettville from The Telegraph here to speak to Paul Newman, please. Fantastic, I'll just put you through. Hello. That's Paul Newman, founder of Oxbotica and professor of information engineering at the University of Oxford, who you heard from at the beginning of the episode. Oxbotica is a spin-out from the university. Um, we spun out about three and a half years ago, and we make software that makes vehicles autonomous. So that includes road-going vehicles, vehicles around airports, vehicles in factories. Um, and I guess the software answers you know, three really giant questions about autonomy. Where am I? What's around me? And what should I do? And it turns out if you can nail those three questions, a lot of vehicles can start moving by themselves. Of course, there's been a lot of coverage of the death of the pedestrian in Arizona who was hit by an autonomous Uber as it was being tested. So although it obviously doesn't exist today, is it possible to create the perfect autonomous car? I think the way to come at this problem is to say that these are engineered tools, like, like many things engineers make, like planes, like cars, like trains. In fact, any device that we make, engineers strive to make it as good as possible. And what happens is, over time, these vehicles, these machines, these planes, these engines, these typewriters get better and better and better and better. So I think that no one really believes there will be a Wednesday where there is a perfect machine, because we've never as a species made a perfect thing. There's always some corner case, something that's not as good as we would want it to be, and that's what engineers do, they fix it. And I think what we're starting to see now is a conversation about, you know, that, that motivates your question about what is that trajectory such that we get very comfortable with the benefits that these vehicles are bringing to us, and also what are their failure statistics? How, you know, how often does something terrible happen? And then look, let's be really, really clear in saying that, that does not in any way take away from the tragedy of an accident. Being able to explain what happened in the accident doesn't take away anything from the tragedy. And that's very, very important as we start to talk about, on balance, what are the benefits versus risks versus downsides of new technology, and it has ever been thus. So, right now, are autonomous vehicles better at driving than humans? Something like 80% of all accidents on the roads are caused through human error and inattention. Now, one thing that the machines will never do, ever, is lose attention. They just cannot be distracted. It's just not a thing that's in their lexicon of behaviour. And so, Immediately, there's something extraordinary happens there. And yet, of course, on the other side of that coin, humans are much better at responding to unexpected situations. There's nothing in, the, in, your, in your driving test or your driving manual about what to do when a horse bolts near you. You know, it, it's got nothing to do with driving. So those corner cases and knowing what to do in sensible cases where the world doesn't make sense, even if you don't need to understand what a horse bolting means, what you would do in those sort of situations, so having confidence around that, that is, that is, that is hard. The algorithms and the software we're writing now are quite, quite specific to a use case. So you might have a computer program that's really good at processing uh, x-rays and, and CAT scans okay, um, for, for medical needs. 
Now, you may have a human radiologist and you might expect he or she to be able to drive to the hospital in the morning. But that's the same radiologist, but they can drive and, and look for cancers. You wouldn't expect your driverless car to be able to do that as well. So they're, they're superhuman specialists. And that's very much where we are in AI at the moment, is building machines and algorithms and tool chains that are good for one particular task that we practice and practice and practice again. And this, this point of generality, that does, that does become hard. But I would say this, I don't think you need to be a generalist to be able to drive well. So once we become comfortable with the technology, how should it be rolled out? I think what's going to happen for passenger transport, you have this geofenced idea. So you have an area of a city or a town where there is a transport system that's running and it runs in a limited area to start with. It's not like you go to a, um, a car dealership and say, I'll buy a car without a steering wheel. And it will have the same functionality that your car has now. That's, that's a long way off. Far sooner is this idea of geofencing. So that, what I mean by geofencing is there's an area um, marked virtually in a city where vehicles can drive people around. And they are very practiced, um, they're monitored, and you can have a transport service. Or another example, around an airport. Um, or might be carrying goods around an airport or inside a warehouse or around a port. I mean, we already have ports that are fully autonomous as well. And so I think it appears like that. Now, at that point, that's a much easier question. I would expect to see that in easily in three to four years. I think to imagine that for all time, humans are going to have to be driving is a staggering, staggering thing to believe. We can do so much more with ourselves. An interesting secondary impact of the arrival of autonomous vehicles is insurance. One of the things we're looking at is insurance where as the vehicle is driving, it is talking to a digital insurance policy. And the insurance policy is giving the vehicle advice on how to reduce its risk. So a simple example is you're driving down the street and there's a whole ton of people on the edge of the street and you're not sure what they're doing. They're not normally there. The insurance policy may say, actually, to the next car, don't turn down there or actually go a little bit slower or maybe something more nuanced. There's a puddle on the road um, and cars are driving through it and there's huge splash coming from that puddle and that could get in the way of one of the cameras or the lasers. So the insurance policy may advise not going down that road or going wider around that curb down there because it's seen something before. So there's something extraordinary when you start to think now about insurance in the loop for these vehicles that themselves could reduce the risk. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. You can see my, my thinking is very much about what do you continually do with these machines because they're digital and are inhuman that can do something that's superhuman. And I think, that, I think that's very interesting as well. You're listening to the Technology Intelligence Podcast with me, Harry DeKetville. We've heard from entrepreneurs working on improving batteries and superconductors, though mobility is a service sector, and lastly, autonomous vehicles with Paul Newman of Oxbotica. To many, autonomous vehicles and the like are still very much something out of a sci-fi film. Think Blade Runner or even the Jetsons. And yet they equally seem to be just round the corner. So I couldn't resist going one step further and asking our entrepreneurs whether they think our transport of the future might soon involve taking to the skies. Jim Heathcote. Uh, yes, I think that's right. As long as they're clean and silent, it'll be fantastic for people. If you look on the internet, you can look and see uh, prototypes flying already. 
And although Paul Newman of Oxbotica confirms that autonomous vehicles in the skies are much easier to deal with than those on the ground, Hugo Spowers has some reservations about my flying fantasies. If we're living in uh, a resource-constrained and particularly an energy-constrained world, I do think energy efficiency is one of the key metrics we've got to be chasing. And uh, any aerial transport will always be many times less efficient than travelling around horizontally in 2D on the ground. And I think it's incumbent upon us to actually develop our systems so that we, A, move around less, and B, when we do move around, we move around more effectively and efficiently. To help me evaluate what all this means, I met Glenn Lyons, a man with an impressive job title, to see where he thinks all this will lead. Well, I'm the Mott McDonald Professor of Future Mobility, so um, I, I look at what might be coming uh, down the track for us and uh, examine the whole range of factors that are conspiring to create a sense of deep uncertainty at the moment. Uh, my background actually is as a graduate civil engineer who latterly has been labelled a transport sociologist, so I've try to join together thinking from the technical space with the social space. And I think that's where really innovation takes place and and lives or dies. And with regard to the future of autonomous vehicles? We have uh, a plausible utopia for driverless cars as a future and we have a plausible dystopia. Uh, because, uh, as with the internet, the, the technology itself is benign. It's how we use it that determines the, the outcomes. Utopia for a driverless future is where, indeed, we're less reliant on owning a vehicle. Um, the level of vehicle utilisation goes up massively. So at the moment, uh, a car will be stationary for 90% plus of the day, which seems, as an asset, Massive underutilisation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had fewer metal boxes and they were used much more intensively? But it's my metal box and I want to put my stuff in it uh, and I have my choice of entertainment in that vehicle. It's, it's an extension of my living space. So when we move into the, the behavioural and the social side, it's perhaps less clear that that high utilisation will take place. But continuing with the idea of utopia, it will be uh, an urban environment where we have far fewer vehicles uh, and they're used more efficiently, which therefore liberates urban space uh, which is in high demand, of course, in, in a society where more people are moving into cities. Uh, we turn parking spaces into living spaces, dwell spaces for society. The car, in many respects, has uh, he held our urban areas hostage to, to, to further more efficient development. Uh, and you can, you can look at different city footprints around the world. Uh, so compare Los Angeles with Berlin or London, and you have a much more compact city in, in the European sense where we're less dependent on the car and we can therefore have uh, higher population levels uh, interacting with one another, getting economic and social benefit from that uh, without the same footprint and reliance on the car. Dystopia is where the car doesn't go away and perhaps is even further reinforced uh, and allowing more liberal use of it um, for our mobility purposes. Those who no longer require a driving licence have access to the car, which means they're not reliant on other modes that 
currently operate, particularly, of course, public transport. So this could undermine uh, the very uh, fragile nature in some cities of the public transport services such that they disappear. Then we have lock-in and dependence on the car. And that really then turns us to the balance of power between the, the technology companies and our public authorities and the, the framework conditions that the public authorities can put in place to make sure we get the best out of these technologies and not the unintended, undesirable consequences. If you had to bet, which future do you think more likely? I'm not inclined to predict the future because I would say that's a fool's errand. But what I will say is that a driveless future is as plausible as a driverless future. And therefore, I think we have to think about a probable combination of those things. How do you see the balance between public and private transport evolving in the coming years? We have a very limited resource in, in our roads. You know, they're, they're a certain width. And really, what we found is whenever you widen a road, it just attracts more traffic. So we need to, to be kind of able to develop services and vehicle models that use them to their optimum. Beata Kubitz, a consultant and researcher on innovative technologies and mobility as a service. Combining rail, where you've got a very efficient number of people uh, on a train, it's much more efficient than the same number of cars on a road. That can you know, take people from A to B. Uh, effectively. Then you've got what happens at the far end when they need to get from the railway station to their home. So if you, you can combine a model where maybe an autonomous vehicle or, or a shared minibus that's dialed off using an app, a bit like uh, the kind of Uber apps that we see, could be quite an efficient way of getting people from a train station to their home. So you can see, you know, there the could be a really good combination of modes of transport where you don't have the same kind of penalties that you maybe have at the moment where you get to a station and then it's sort of late at night so the buses are very infrequent taxi not to be seen you know, that kind of thing um, there's the potential for technology to really change that experience and we should be looking to see how we want to live better uh, you know having more pedestrian space so that people are walking on the streets safely so that people are cycling safely and, and you know, we've got an issue here where if people are driving end to end and not walking and cycling sufficiently, we're, we're generating health problems. So we should be thinking about how do we want cities that are walkable and cyclable, um, not just people driving to the door and not getting that fresh air and exercise. Glenn Lyons once again. What I find intriguing is uh, our conversation, of course, is focused on physical mobility. Um, but we're in the digital age and it seems to me we must entertain what's happening with movement of information rather than movement of people. We're, we've already advanced to the point where we can have Skype-based conversations, families can stay in touch. I'm not suggesting we all want to enter the world of the matrix. But in fact, if technology advances in the way it has in the last half century uh, in terms of computing power and AI, then I think it's just as credible to entertain the idea that our brains will have such a high definition representation of a pseudo reality that we can stay, uh, stay where we are and we can experience the world and we can interact with one another without the need for these very old fashioned machines, whether they're autonomous, flying or otherwise. 
And we'll leave you with that somewhat dramatic thought from Glenn Lyons. And it rings true in some ways because our contributors in today's episode have been based all around the UK, from the borders to Land's End. So driving to meet them all face to face, even with current technology, just wasn't practical. Talking of practicality, will Glenn's vision of high-definition virtual or pseudo-realities really become a practical and central part of our future? And even if they do become technically feasible, will we humans really embrace them? We'll just have to wait and see. On the next episode of Tech Intelligence, we'll be looking at the future of work, how the jobs of today might change, and which jobs of the future will resist the advance of automation and artificial intelligence. Because from the high street to accountancy and law and in many other fields, AI and machine learning will surely put hundreds of thousands of jobs at risk. And that's in Britain alone. How will we respond? What new avenues will open up even as others close? Well, as ever, we'll be speaking to the entrepreneurs on the cutting edge of these innovations to discover where those developments might lead. Which leaves me to say, subscribe to this podcast for updates and remember to give us a review. To find out more about the Tech Intelligence podcast, visit telegraph.co.uk. Finally, if technology is your thing, you can hear a daily update on the latest tech news from The Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.